great to see you guys here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we owe everything to your goodness and grace. The fact that we can be here right now in this room together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for making a way. Lord, we thank you for sustaining us through these many months, having been separated, having been forced to come up with different ways, less than ideal ways of gathering and worshiping as a corporate body. Well, Lord, we thank you for all of those different ways to worship you and all those who put so much effort into making that possible. Lord, but we are so grateful for this moment right now to be here, to hear your word read and now preached within this sanctuary, within this place where so much spiritual good has been accomplished by your grace. And we can testify to that because we can think of times and moments in the past where in this very place, in this very room, in these pews, we met with you. You met with us. You spoke to us. You ministered to us. And Lord, we ask once again that you do that now through the preaching of your word. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, church, this morning we are starting a new summer series that we are calling Heroes of the Faith. What we're going to do each week is to highlight a particular Old Testament character and to preach on the most prominent and most well-known episode in their story. We're talking about that moment where the character in Scripture really shines forth as a hero, as an example to us of, of faith and godliness. But in the end, our bigger goal here is to show you how that particular Old Testament hero simply foreshadows another hero to come. How these heroes of the faith really point us forward to the real hero of the faith, who is Christ Jesus, our risen Lord, the Son of God. Now this series is unashamedly inspired by Sally Lloyd-Jones's The Jesus Storybook Bible. If, if, if you're a parent and you don't have a copy of that Bible, I, I think we have some in our books hall, uh, but we'll definitely fill it up uh, with copies of that. And, and if, if, even if you're not a parent, you should still read this anyways, because this is my family's favorite kid's Bible, not only because it, it does a great job of retelling the biblical stories in a fun and engaging manner, and, and not only because the illustrations are, are creative and unique, but because each chapter of each biblical story ends with a direct connection to Christ, helping us, helping our kids to see how everything points to Jesus. The, the, the subtitle of the book itself hints at this theme. It says, every story whispers his name. In every story of Scripture, we are shown how Jesus is foreshadowed, how he is the fulfillment of God's promise to, his, to love his covenant people with, as the phrase goes in the book, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That's the Jesus Storybook Bible. That's what it does, and that's what we hope to accomplish in this series together. We want to show you how all of the biblical narratives in the Old Testament, all of these characters that we so love, 
that we read about since we were kids, how it's all connected to a bigger story being told from the pages of Scripture all the way from, from cover to cover. Like a missing piece of the puzzle, Jesus does truly bring it all together. He does complete that picture. He's that key that unlocks the mysteries and, and brings to light for us a clearer vision of God and, and of his loving work of redemption. Now, friends, even though we're highlighting the high points in the stories of these Old Testament heroes, and even though they do set before us a very great example that ought to inspire us to want to imitate their faith, even though, in the end, our message is not for you simply to be like Abraham or Moses or to be like Ruth or Esther. It's not simply to do as they did, but it's to realize that they could only do what they did and, and we can only imitate them in their faith if we share in the same faith and come to know the true hero of the Bible and to strive truly to be like him. So that's what we're really ultimately pointing you to, not just the hero, but to the God of Scripture. So we're going to kickstart this summer series with a story about Abraham the patriarch of Israel, the first recipient of the Old Covenant promises. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless Abraham and his family and to make them a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, if you're familiar with Abraham's story, then you know that it's a story marked by sacrifice. In the very beginning of his story, he's asked to sacrifice everything that's comfortable and familiar to him. He's asked to leave behind his home, his family, his land. But at least every sacrifice that the Lord makes, asks of him, he balances out at the same time with a promise of blessing. To bless you with a new home and a new family, a new land. So yes, he's being asked to give up a lot, but at least the Lord was going to make it worth his while. But it's here in our text that Abraham is asked to make a sacrifice unlike any before. Here in our passage, he is asked to sacrifice with nothing to gain. He's faced with a test. A test to determine if his trust is really in the Lord or merely in the things the Lord has promised. Which do you love more, Abraham? The promised blessings of the covenant or the God of the covenant himself? The promises or the promise maker? Which is it? Who do you trust? Who do you love? Well, friends, to break down this very familiar story, what we're going to do is to consider three aspects of this story. And uh, now you have a bulletin in your hand, and there's an actual sermon outline in there. You can follow along. First, we're going to consider the nature and purpose of the Lord's rather shocking request. We're going to look first at the test of faith. Then we'll consider Abraham's response to this test. So we'll look at, second, the obedience of faith. And finally, we'll consider what motivated Abraham to obey, even at such a great cost. We're going to focus our attention on, third, the God who provides. Okay, so let's begin by considering this test of faith that God has arranged for Abraham. Now, chapter 22 begins by setting this text, this test within the context of Abraham's larger story. So listen to verse 1 with me. After these things, 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, here I am. Now that phrase, after these things, alerts us that we ought to consider how the previous chapter concluded. How did Genesis 21 end? Well, there in Genesis 21, if you look in verse 33, we read that Abraham there called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. El Olam, the everlasting God. You see, prior to our passage, there was great instability in Abraham's life, partly due to the drama surrounding Hagar and and Ishmael, the son that he had with Hagar, Hagar, who was his wife's maidservant, and also partly due to his failure to protect his wife from the advances of Abimelech, a local Philistine ruler. And so at this point, there was a moment in his story where the future was very insecure, where the covenant promises were very unstable. Will Isaac, will the son of his old age with Sarah, his wife, will he be the son of promise through whom all the covenant blessings will flow? It's not yet clear. But then by the end of Genesis 21, the Lord has shown himself to be faithful, to be faithful to all of his promises and, 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 and his covenant, his covenant will endure even in spite of Abraham's faithlessness and all of his failures. And that's why he recognizes the Lord as the everlasting God, the one who is everlasting in his commitment to his promises. But now it's this everlasting and enduring God who is introducing confusion and chaos into Abraham's life. This God is now testing Abraham to see if he really believes in God's everlasting faithfulness to his promises. Now that word there, test, it prepares the reader for what is to follow and how to interpret what you find It's a cue that what God is about to ask Abraham to do is not something he actually intends for him to go through with. That's something we have to be very clear about. This passage does not suggest in the slightest that God condones or much less desires child sacrifice. This, we're told, is a test from the very beginning. But Abraham doesn't know that. For all he knows, God is completely serious. He is taking God's request seriously. Now, no doubt, God's request would have shocked Abraham, but I would contend it would shock him, not for the same reason that it shocks us. You see, we're shocked by the mere mention of child sacrifice coming from God, Because we know that that, that's a wicked practice. That's a practice even prohibited by his own law. It's opposed to his holy character. But you have to remember, at this point in the story, Abraham is just getting to know Yahweh. He has just begun to reveal himself. And there's no written scripture yet for him just to pick up and read and find more about God. So he doesn't know God as fully as we know him now. And so At the same time, there's no Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verse 21, or Deuteronomy 18, verse 10, where there God does explicitly and directly prohibit child sacrifice. 
So you have to understand, for Abraham, a man living in the ancient Near East, the idea of a God demanding the sacrifice of children would not have been a shock. The fact that Leviticus and Deuteronomy had to directly prohibit such practices for Israel tells us that such things were common enough. You see, what shocked Abraham was not that God was asking for a child sacrifice in general, but that God was asking him to sacrifice this child in particular. This is supposed to be the child of promise. This was the child in whom all of the covenant blessings were to flow through Abraham's family and by extension to all the families of the earth. You know, even before Isaac was conceived, Abraham had asked the Lord if Ishmael could play that role. If Ishmael could could just be that child through whom all the blessings flow, Ishmael's already here. He was fine with it being him, but it was the Lord who insisted, no, the covenant blessings are going to flow through a son born to you of Sarah. It's going to be Isaac. Lord, you insisted that the child of promise be Isaac, and, and now you're telling me to kill him? Now you want me to sacrifice him to you? Abraham is understandably shocked, just for a reason different than us. Now, as we mentioned earlier, this was the first time in his story that the Lord is asking Abraham to make a sacrifice without at the same time balancing it out with a promise of blessing. So there seems really to be no apparent reason for this sacrifice. No gain or no benefit that we can see here. In fact, it seems like God is actually erasing all of the plans that he had made with Abraham, that he's reneging on all of his promises. That's how Abraham would have interpreted this request. He, he's being asked not just to kill his son, but to kill all hope in the covenant promises of blessing that he had been banking on up to this point. All of the sacrifices he had made earlier were because he was trusting in these promises of God that was going to come through a child, through Sarah. Now the child's here, and now you want me to kill him? This was a test to determine if his trust is really in the Lord or merely in the things the Lord had promised to him. It's a test to determine where Abraham ultimately places his trust. Are you actually trusting in the God of the covenant, or are you merely trusting in the promised blessings and benefits of the covenant? Do you love your promised salvation more than you love the God who promises to save you? That's an important question, friends, that... I think all of us need to be confronted with. All of us need to go through a test like this. We need to find out whether our love for our salvation is more than our love for the God who saves. I mean, just just imagine if you were presented with a choice. Live in a perfect world with a perfect life with perfect family and friends, with no suffering or sickness to steal your joy, but without God, or on the other hand, live in a world of sin and suffering, filled with frustration and disappointment, but with God in your life. Which would you choose? 
I think some of us just might choose that first option. Our hope is in heaven, but not so much the Lord of heaven. Would you be content to enjoy the promised blessings of heaven even if God were not there? That would be very similar to Abraham being content to enjoy being a father finally, being the father of many nations, to enjoy the blessings of the covenant even if the God of the covenant were absent from his life. This was a test to see if that was so. Now, who was this test for? Who needed this information? Who who needed to know how Abraham would respond here? Well, certainly it was for Abraham. He needed to know. He needed to know where his trust and his hope ultimately lies. He needs to know if he's deceiving himself or not. This test was also for Isaac. For him to know that his father does love him. His father has been hoping and praying for him longer than he can even imagine But Isaac needs to know that his father's hope is ultimately not in him, but in the God whom he trusts. This test is also for us, for us to know what faith is, for us to know what true faith looks like, that it is a living faith, an active faith that manifests itself in works. The book of James, we learn there that Abraham's faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works, most notably this work of offering up his son on the altar. But if you look at verse 12, look there with me, look, look specifically at verse 12, there it explicitly says that this test was for God. After the angel of the Lord stays his hand, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now I know that you fear me. That's why God put Abraham through this test, so that he can know that Abraham fears him and reveres him and ultimately trusts in him. I know you're probably thinking, but doesn't God already know all of that? Like, doesn't he know Abraham's hearts? He knows all of our hearts. Why did he need to put Abraham through this test to find out? Well, yes, you're right. God did already know what was in Abraham's heart, and he, and he also knows the future. He knows what Abraham was going to do and how he was going to respond to this test. But just think about this. There's a difference between cognitive knowledge and experiential knowledge, between knowing something to be true in your head and knowing something to be true through your experience of it. So, for example, my wife knows I love her. Call that a cognitive knowledge of my love. But she also loves it when I actually manifest my love in actual choices and in real-life decisions, especially when it involves a sacrifice on my part. That would give her an experiential knowledge of my love, and that is a very important and meaningful difference. Well, let's apply this to our relationship with God. Think about it. He knows what we need, even before we do. And yet he still wants us to pray for it, to actually say the words. He knows how we feel. He knows how we feel even better than we do. 
And yet he still wants us to praise him in song and thanksgiving, to speak the words out loud. So in the same way, God knew that Abraham feared him. He knew also how Abraham would respond. But God also loves it when these inner realities and these future realities are manifested in the present, in actual choices, and in real-life decisions. That gives him an experiential knowledge of our love. And so, friends, that means that our actions and our choices matter. Your obedience to the Lord matters. Though he already knows that you trust him, though he already knows whether you will obey him or not, your obedience, your actual choice to obey, especially when it's costly, especially when it involves a sacrifice, that well pleases the Lord. He loves it. And that's why he puts us to a test. Now let's turn our attention to Abraham and to how he responds to this test. Let's look at his obedience, which we're calling an obedience of faith. We just looked at the test of faith. Let's see how Abraham stands up to it. Look back with me at verse 2. The Lord's not making it easy for Abraham. Listen to how the Lord presents his request to him. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now notice with me how the Lord is just stacking up these phrases one on top of another. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son whom you love. Take him and offer him as a burnt offering. See, grammatically, the stacking here is intended to magnify the intensity of this request. And he is to offer Isaac, we're told, as a burnt offering. That's the only kind of offering where the, the offering was completely consumed by fire. That means you would wholly dedicate Isaac to the Lord. And if you keep on reading in verse 3 and, and on, Abraham, he doesn't betray any emotions. Uh, we can only speculate what's going on in his mind. What we see here in the pages of Scripture is just a man going through the motions the very next day, next day early in the morning, to prepare for a trip to a far-off mountain to build for himself an altar to the Lord. And we're told that he brought a donkey, two young servants, and his son Isaac. And it says that it was a three-day trip in order to reach Mount Moriah. Three days. Imagine just silently and, and privately having to endure for three days all of this weighing on your mind, pulling on your heart. We're not given an inside look into his thoughts. The, the, this is not how this kind of narrative is told. But we do have his words. And Abraham's words are actually revealing of what is going on inside internally. So let's look at what he says to his two servants in verse 5. Look there with me. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and come again to you. Now, it's a bit obscured in the English, but the verbs for worship and come again are both in the first person 
plural. And so that means a literal translation, which doesn't read as smoothly, which is why you don't find it in, in English translations, would literally say, I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and we will come again to you. That's a clunky sentence, but it's important to stress. We will come again to you. That's what faith sounds like. Those are the words of a man who trusts in the everlasting God to keep his covenant for everlasting. Abraham doesn't know how, but somehow the Lord is going to stay true to his promises. Somehow the Lord is going to preserve this child of promise, even if I do end up offering him as a burnt offering on the altar. The author of Hebrews actually comments on this particular episode in Abraham's life, and he, he gives us divinely inspired insight into Abraham's thought process. Listen with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. If you want to turn there, you can, you can look there with me. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews is saying that those words, we will come again to you, illustrate Abraham's faith in the Lord to provide a way to keep his covenant promises, even if it means raising his son from the dead. God would make a way. So just as he treated God's request to sacrifice Isaac seriously, Abraham treated God's word seriously when God had promised that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The Lord said it. The Lord promised it. It will be done. Now notice more words that are more revealing of Abraham's thought process. Look at verse 8 with me. Isaac just asked, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Listen to what Abraham says to him at the end. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now that word there for provide in the Hebrew is literally the word to see. Literally, Abraham is telling his son that God will see for himself the lamb. Now, according to Scripture, God, when he sees, when he sees things, he doesn't see like a passive bystander, like a passive observer, just seeing but not doing anything about it. No, when God sees, he sees in the sense of seeing to it. He will see to it that it gets done. He'll see to it that a lamb will be provided. That's why English translations, instead of translating it as he will see, is he will provide, he will see to it, he will provide the means to accomplish the task. This, my friends, is where we get the idea of divine providence. Providence? Providence is the belief that God sees us. That he sees our needs, he sees all events, he sees all outcomes, and he sees to it that, our, that his will be done in our lives. 
So what Abraham's words here reveal is a deep-seated faith in God's good providence over his life. He believes that God will see to it himself that a lamb will be provided. So have no fear, my son. The Lord is going to take care of it. That's faith speaking, and that's why we call his obedience, not just mere obedience, but obedience of faith. It was motivated by his faith in God and God's good providence. You know, commentators have noted how Isaac also exemplifies faith in God's good providence. If you think about it, if Isaac was old enough and strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain himself, well, then he's strong enough and, and, and old enough and, and quick enough to resist or to evade his over 100-year-old father. So, so please don't imagine Abraham overpowering his son and forcing him to be bound up and thrown on top of the altar. No, that's probably not what happened. Apparently, the son trusted his father and refused to resist or to flee. He too must have believed that God would provide for himself a lamb. And he probably thought, even if I'm to play that role, even if I am to be that lamb, God is somehow going to see to it that his promises that he made to my father will be kept through me. Because he said it was going to come through me. So Isaac let himself be bound and placed on the altar atop of the wood. He lay there silent as a sheep before its shearers. But as the knife was about to come down, the angel of the Lord called from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. He stopped Abraham. He stayed his hand and he provided for him a ram that had been caught by its horn in the thickets. So Abraham took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, verse 13. Instead of his son, God provided a substitute. This is the language of salvation by substitution. And as that ram was being wholly consumed by the flames, I am certain that both father and son stared at the fire and wondered to themselves, that should have been my son. That should have been me. Thanks be to God for his gracious provision of a substitute. Now, if we keep on reading in verses 15 to 18, the angel of the Lord speaks once again and essentially reaffirms the covenant promises that the Lord had established with Abraham back at Genesis 12. But this time, there are two key differences when he reaffirms the covenant. First, in verse 16, the Lord reinforces his, covenant to, his commitment to the covenant, notice, by swearing to himself. He didn't do that before. He just made a promise, but now he makes an oath to back up that promise by swearing on himself. You see, when people swear an oath, they typically swear on something greater than, than themselves. You know, we, we swear on the Bible. We swear to God. But since... God has no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself. And there is really no stronger way for God to promise you something, to prove his everlasting commitment to a promise than to swear by himself. The second difference in our text 
compared to the covenant promise in Genesis 12 is that Abraham's obedience is highlighted as playing a crucial role in the covenant. In Genesis 12 and 15, the covenant promises are established all by God according to his sovereign grace without a view to Abraham or to what he was going to do or to, to his obedience. But now, notice here in verse 18. Did you see that in verse 18 at the very end? Notice how it says that all of these blessings will be yours and they will flow through you and through your offspring to the nations, to all the families of the earth, because you have obeyed my voice. Because you obeyed. Abraham's obedience played a key role in securing these covenant blessings, not just for his family, but for all the families of the earth. So once again, the whole point is is that your obedience matters. That's why God is going to put you through your own set of trials, your own tests, so that you can exercise faith and make the right choices to choose to trust him even when it's confusing, even when it's costly. Your obedience matters. But in the end, in the end, you have nothing to boast in if it's an obedience of faith where your obedience to the Lord is motivated and sustained by your faith in the Lord and in his faithfulness. All credit and all glory goes not to the subject of the obedience, not to us, but to the object of the faith, to the Lord. Notice how Abraham, when he left that place, even though his obedience played such a crucial role, notice he he didn't walk away naming that place. That's the place where Abraham obeyed. From now on, everyone will know this is where Abraham obeyed. No, that's that's not the name he gave it. Notice what's the name he gave it. The Lord will provide because all glory goes to God and his gracious provision in our lives, even enabling us to obey. The focus is on God. So with that being said, let's shift focus away from Abraham and focus it back onto the Lord. Let's consider the Lord who provides our final point because that's what Abraham learns about God. Remember, as we said, he's still learning more about Yahweh. There's no scripture yet where he can just pick it up and read to find out more about God's character and his ways. So everything he's learning is coming from experiential knowledge. So because of this experience, he now knows God as the Lord who provides. Listen to verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So here we learn a glorious truth. We learn that the God who tests us is also the God who provides for us. He's not some cruel taskmaster who tests you with all these difficult tests just to see you fail. No, he wants to see you succeed. So when God tests you, he will graciously provide whatever you need to grow and to mature from that test. And that's what Abraham could depend on. The Lord had asked him to trust and obey, to trust and obey even when it didn't make sense, to trust and obey even when there didn't seem to be any apparent benefit But now Abraham knows 
with an experiential knowledge that the God who requests such radical trust and such costly obedience is a God who graciously provides. He will see to it that your needs are satisfied and that his purposes will be accomplished in your life. We're told in verse 14 that from that day on, there was a saying among Abraham's descendants. There was an idiom used among the people of Israel. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Whenever they would face their own set of tests, they would say that phrase, that idiom to each other. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Whenever they were asked to trust and obey God in a costly and sacrificial way, they would say to themselves, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It was to remind themselves of this highlight moment in Abraham's story. This key moment where where their forefather was tested, where he obeyed in faith, and when the Lord proved himself to be that faithful provider as the one who will see to it that a way be made for his covenant promises to last forever, to be forever lasting. But what Abraham's descendants didn't realize at the time was the lengths to which God would go to provide for his people. Because many years later, on another mount, this one called Calvary, another son would climb up the mountain with wood laid on his back. Like Isaac, he would not resist what was coming to him. He trusted his father. As a sheep is silent before its shears, the Son of God was lifted up on top of the wood to be slaughtered. But unlike Isaac, there was no voice ringing out from heaven saying, stop. There was no other ram to be slain. No, unlike Isaac, Jesus was the substitute. He's the substitute for us. He was the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. He was God's only Son, the Son whom he loved the son whom he sacrificed for us. So what does that mean, my friends? Well, it means that when God asks you to trust and obey him, when he calls for you to sacrifice something costly, something dear to you, just know that he speaks to you as someone who experientially knows what it's like to do the exact same. He sacrificed what was dearest to him his only begotten son, because he is committed to his covenant promises and he is committed to love his covenant people. And so I ask you, in what way is God calling you to trust and obey him today? I'm sure in one way or another, it's going to cost you something. It's going to be a sacrifice. For some of you, obedience to the Lord right now is going to cost you financially. You may have to make a sacrifice in your career or in your career aspirations in order for you to be more faithful to the Lord and to his higher calling on your life to be one of his disciples or to be a loving spouse, to be a faithful, loving parent, for you to fulfill that role 
perhaps you're going to have to make a sacrifice in your career, financially. For some of you, to trust and obey might not cost you financially, but it may cost you some social capital. For you to obey the Lord, for you to follow his word in a day and age where his word is being rejected, well, if you choose to obey, you may lose friendships and opportunities. You may face ridicule and derision. And I believe for some of you, he's calling you to be a Christian. He's calling you today to be one of his disciples. And that surely is going to cost you dearly. You'll have to deny yourself. You'll have to take up your cross daily and follow him. You're going to have to carry the wood on your back and to go up the mount of sacrifice. What will you do? What will you do when you are faced with such a test? Well, know this, my friends, that on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. The Savior, your substitute, made the ultimate sacrifice, and he will personally see to it that you will receive the promised blessings of salvation in this life or the next. He'll provide. He'll see to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, a familiar story. Thank you for fresh eyes to see it with new light. And we pray now that you would give us the faith to obey, the faith that enables us to let go, to trust, to make the choice, the hard choice, the costly choice, the sacrificial one, trusting that you will provide. You will see to it because you have already provided on the mount where your son died for us as our substitute. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.